The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. There's no question in my mind that Al Qaeda has deeper roots in Africa than it's had probably at any time in its history, although it's it's efforts in Africa go way, way back to the 1990s. And it has a, one of its probably most important affiliate is the Shabaab in Somalia. Um, and the Shabaab is of concern. And I think actually the Biden administration did the right thing in doing a small plus up in US forces to go after the Shabaab. The caveat I would make to all this though, is that Africa has traditionally been less of a strategic priority to the United States when you compare it with the Middle East or South Asia. And it's bad when there's a greater Al-Qaeda presence in Somalia or in West Africa, but this is of less concern than having an Al-Qaeda presence that's significant in Saudi Arabia. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 21st, 2022. Asfandiar Mir of the U.S. Institute of Peace and Daniel Byman of Lawfare, Brookings, and Georgetown are both analysts of al-Qaeda and terrorist groups. They have a different analysis, however, of how al-Qaeda is faring in the current world. Rather than argue about the subject on Twitter, they wrote an article about it spelling out where they agree and where they disagree, and we thought it would make for a good podcast. So they joined me in the virtual jungle studio to chew over the whole thing. Where is Al-Qaeda strong and resilient? Where is it weak and failing? Where has it disappeared altogether? We chew over it all. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 21st. Byman and Mir debate Al-Qaeda. I want to start with just the case, Dan, that Al-Qaeda has really ebbed and we're kind of done with it. I'm going to I'm going to ask each of you a little bit to caricature your own positions, but state the strongest version of the argument that you make in this piece, Dan, which is that we're long past peak Al-Qaeda. You summed it up nicely. So I would say that Al-Qaeda hit its peak decades ago. It remained a threat in the ensuing years and does so today, but far less than in the past. And from a counterterrorism point of view and from an overall strategic priority point of view, 
we can lower al-Qaeda on the list, and that has significant implications. And spell that out a little bit. What is the evidence that we should lower al-Qaeda on the list, and what are the implications of being able to do so? So the first thing to look at is simply attacks on the United States, or if you want to open the aperture more broadly, attacks on the United States and key allies, whether it's in Europe or countries like Saudi Arabia. And we've seen very few, and it's the number is not zero, but the number is far lower, at least than I feared, after the 9-11 attacks. And in you know, recent years, it's been pretty close to zero when you uh, talk about the United States and Europe. You could also flip this around and think of it from al-Qaeda's point of view. Not only did they want to attack the United States, uh, but they also wanted to do regime change in Muslim-majority countries like Egypt or Saudi Arabia, and they have made no progress there. They've sought to remove U.S. forces from the Middle East. Uh, there are about 30,000 forces in the Middle East at any given time. The organization has significant financial problems, but more importantly, organizational weaknesses. And the leadership is under siege. It has difficulty communicating, uh, in part due to the U.S. drone program. And one of its most important sources of strength, and here I think Asfandiar and I agree, are its affiliate organizations. But most of these are focused on local and regional concerns. And that's an issue for the U.S. presence in the Middle East and more broadly in countries like Africa, but that's far less of a concern than a massive threat to the U.S. homeland. All right. So, Esfandiar, what is the opposite case, the case that we are missing? What's Dan missing here? What's the case that al-Qaeda is actually stronger than uh, he's saying it is? So, you know, my concern on al-Qaeda really stems from the fact that uh, despite being the most hunted organization in the world, uh, Al-Qaeda is still able to threaten uh, the U.S. homeland, broader security interests, as well as regional stability, primarily in Africa, but also uh, to an extent in South Asia, and perhaps less so in the Middle East today. Uh, and to understand this threat, I really think we have to pay attention to, to the trajectory of the group in light of the constraints that it has faced. It has been easily the most you know, targeted organization of the last 20 years. Uh, and when you do that, I think what, what becomes evident is that Al-Qaeda still shows a lot of resolve and commitment in its political ambition to fight the United States. And, and that's concerning to me. And it is a vital indicator of the threat in my read. Because Al-Qaeda has faced all this pressure to change direction. It hasn't done so. Uh, then the second indicator uh, that I watch and it concerns me is Al-Qaeda's cohesion, in particular over the last five to, uh, to seven years. I'd argue it has stayed remarkably cohesive, politically cohesive, despite poaching pressure uh, from a rival jihadist organization, ISIS. You know, the absence of uh, regular direction from its core leadership, you know, competing regional realities uh, where Al-Qaeda's various branches are based. And then, of course, multinational state efforts to really divide and break up this group. So, you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to what's going on in Africa these days. And, and there, some of these affiliates are doing really well, uh, like Al-Shabaab in Somalia, a really powerful and lethal organization there in West Africa, the Sahel region in particular, 
the Al-Qaeda affiliate there is able to threaten multiple countries. And then in South Asia, where the Taliban have been able to make a comeback, Al-Qaeda retains an alliance with the Taliban, and then it, it has an affiliate of its own, uh, which uh, threatens Pakistan through an allied organization and, and, and increasingly India as well. So, you know, the sum total of this is that, yes, Al-Qaeda is a weaker in important ways, but its resilience, given the pressure it has faced, is kind of remarkable and therefore constitutes a major threat. Okay, so I want to ask you both to what extent the arguments that you just made are contingent on the Taliban's retaking of Afghanistan. That is, you know, there was a deal uh, in which essentially we would let the Taliban retake Afghanistan if they kept al-Qaeda out and didn't allow it as a staging ground for attacks on the U.S. Asfandiar, to what extent is your argument predicated on the assumption that that was a fantasy on our part and they will be back with a safe haven in Afghanistan? And Dan, to what extent is your argument negated to the extent that that happens and the safe haven does reconstitute itself? My sense is that the Taliban have not broken from al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda still has a presence there. In fact, Al-Qaeda chief Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, who has his share of criticism and, uh, you know, people question his leadership, even in the jihadist world, he, he's most likely still in uh, Afghanistan. The UN said so uh, very recently. Uh, and the Taliban are committed to their Al-Qaeda allies. They want to protect them. I do think that there's something to the to the guarantee that the Taliban have uh, offered uh, of not letting Al-Qaeda plot from, from Afghanistan. But I think there are also caveats that we don't fully understand. Perhaps there is a time validity to, uh, to how long the Taliban will, will hold that agreement. But overall, I think Al-Qaeda is in a much better place uh, today uh, due to the U.S. withdrawal, due to the return of the Taliban, and it is uh, going to regenerate uh, at a steady pace over a period of time. And that that is a major contribute, uh, contributor to the threat uh, that I assess that Al-Qaeda still poses. Dan, h- how important is the Taliban to this conversation? So one thing I like about writing with Tasfandiar is, is we agree at times and we both try to acknowledge that. So let me start by saying that I agree that the Taliban has not broken with Al-Qaeda. And also uh, the Taliban victory is a win for Al-Qaeda. From a counterterrorism point of view, we're worse off because of the Taliban victory. However, I'm not as concerned about that as many observers. And let me say a couple of reasons. First, I think Al-Qaeda itself is much weaker than it was in the 1990s. I don't think its brand is nearly as exciting. It's not as dynamic. We can get into this, but I think Ayman al-Zawahiri is not nearly as effective a leader as bin Laden. So to me, there are a lot of reasons to think that it will have less capacity by itself. Uh, the Taliban also has reasons to constrain al-Qaeda. If you go back to the 1990s, this was not a completely happy marriage. And they've learned the very heavy cost of having al-Qaeda do international terrorist attacks that involve the United States. And I think they're um, much more likely to be cautious about this, in part because the Taliban has really never been focused on the U.S. homeland or 
um, this kind of broad international agenda. It's much more locally and regionally focused. Uh, the U.S. also has a lot more capacity, both offensively in terms of being able to attack Afghanistan and also defensively in terms of better intelligence and better home and defense. The scenario I'm a bit more worried about is that we'll see more support for groups uh, that are operating in Pakistan and India from the Afghan sanctuary. And that might be a kind of middle ground from the Taliban's point of view. And that's one to watch. That's one of concern. But to me, it's not, again, at the same level of challenge as uh, the massive operation that existed in the 1990s that was targeted against the United States. All right. So let's talk region by region here. Dan, to what extent do you disagree with Asfandiar about al-Qaeda in Africa? So I both agree with him empirically in that there's no question in my mind that al-Qaeda has deeper roots in Africa than it's had probably at any time in its history, although its, its efforts in Africa go way, way back to the 1990s. And it has a, one of its probably most important affiliate is the Shabab in Somalia. Um, and the Shabab is of concern. And I think actually the Biden administration did the right thing in doing a small plus up in U.S. forces to go after the Shabab. The caveat I would make to all this, though, is that Africa has traditionally been less of a strategic priority to the United States when you compare it with the Middle East or South Asia. And it's bad when there's a greater al-Qaeda presence in Somalia or in West Africa. But this is of less concern than having an al-Qaeda presence that's significant in Saudi Arabia or in other countries that have traditionally been more important. So I would stress again that there are reasons to be concerned about this, and this could involve more intelligence cooperation, more military training with regional states. But this doesn't need to be a priority because these areas uh, historically have been of less interest to the United States. And I think the threat to the United States is something that can be managed even though it's something that needs to be monitored. Asfandiar, why is that wrong? Why is why is our US interests more threatened? Like assuming assuming you guys agree empirically about the degree of al-Qaeda's presence in uh through mostly through affiliates in in a variety of African countries, why is Dan wrong that that's just not that big a problem? from a U.S. interest point of view. Right. So, so Dan and I converge on our read of, these, uh, of, the, of the trajectories of these affiliates, uh, in particular in Africa. But, you know, as you stated, his counter is that these capabilities are mostly a local problem. And I, you know, I disagree uh, with that. Uh, you know, my concern is that this distinction between which capabilities threaten U.S. interest, you know, specific to the homeland as well as in the region, and which ones don't, is not always clear or equally important uh, predictable and and we've we've suffered from these kinds of blind spots in the past as well for example uh, the local capabilities of al qaeda and its allies in pakistan you know between say 2007 through 2009 uh, somalia as well and yemen in particular you know i think they've surprised us they they were thought to be mostly local problems, and then they expanded into both regional and transnational problems. And specifically, I'll point to the case of AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the affiliate in Yemen, 
was formed in early 2009. It was considered a local threat. And my read is, you know, even within the, the U.S. government, the analytical consensus was this is a problem of Yemen. But then it surprised a lot of people when it started plotting attacks against the U.S. homeland in late 2009. And then, you know, that remained a problem for uh, for many years after. So uh, all of this is to say that I don't think we can look at these affiliates in these specific regions and be very confident that they will remain confined to those regions. I think uh, they have a tendency to project outward from those places as well. I want to actually footstomp Asfandiar's point. And if I were critiquing my own argument, I would really highlight this question of uncertainty. And one thing that I would argue is the United States can afford to live with more uncertainty and more risk than in the past because the overall movement is diminished for a variety of reasons. But I do want to emphasize this fundier's point that there is a high degree of uncertainty. And to be able to say, you know, look, there's a movement in any part of the world that's locally focused in five years, it will remain locally focused. I think that's an assumption that always has to be questioned and whether or not the local movement is going more international should be a priority for intelligence. All right. So next stop, Asfandiar, you mentioned AQAP. A few years ago, this was considered the most lethal and active Al-Qaeda affiliate worldwide. How should we understand, and certainly the one with the greatest ambitions of projecting force against the United States, how should we understand the state of AQAP today? It's for a lot of Americans, it's kind of gotten lost in the battle between the Houthis and the and the central government. Uh, where is it now and and how big a deal is it? So my, my read is that AQAP uh, from its peak in 2015, 2016, you know, has has lost uh, strength uh, in large part due to the civil war in, in Yemen. Uh, and that has contributed to the group's relative fragmentation as well. But overall, still this who, uh, group holds together. Uh, the group still maintains a focus on external attacks and plots. Uh, AQAP came very close to an attack in 2019. A Saudi Air Force pilot uh, who was in contact with AQAP leadership attempted an attack on a U.S. naval base in Pensacola. And uh, that uh, attack was, uh, well, it took place and there was some loss of life, but no, not, not a lot of damage was done in that attack. And uh, and so AQAP still retains this focus. It wants to attack the United States as recently as late last year. A senior AQAP leader threatened, uh, you know, major attacks being in the pipeline. So it has a lot of ambitions. Uh, but due to the civil war and the and U.S. targeting pressures in Yemen, uh, the group has been scaled back from its peak of some years ago. Dan, what's your, is there, is there any disagreement here about how we should think about AQAP? Uh, no, not at all. And I, I would agree with this, Fandiar, that it does still have some more, um, I'll say, international ambitions. But I would stress his point that it's a lot weaker than it was five or six years ago. And I hope continued pressure on it will keep it that way. All right. So what about just sort of moving east from Africa to Yemen? But let's make a brief stop in Saudi Arabia, which is, of course, the home of bin Laden. My impression is that the Saudi regime 
whatever its other faults has been relatively effective in controlling Al-Qaeda activity over the last dozen years or so. Either of you, am I wrong? Uh, I'll I'll begin on that one. So I would say the Saudi regime has done uh, very well, in part because if we go back to the kind of 2003-2005 period, you had a really a low-level insurgency going on in the kingdom uh, that Al-Qaeda was trying to foment. And there were significant terrorist attacks, attacks on Saudi security forces. And there were two big effects. One was the Saudi regime you know, crushed this in a police sense, but also the attacks alienated many ordinary Saudis that saw attacks on the officials in the kingdom as illegitimate. Uh, so I think in general, Saudi Arabia has done a good job policing its own boundaries. The bigger challenge for Saudi Arabia remains the terrorism funding issue. And uh, in my view, it's made significant improvements uh, in stopping money going directly to Al-Qaeda. The broader challenge, though, is Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, similar groups are part of a broader network of, I'll say, causes and this could be in Syria, this could be in West Africa, that are linked to various charities, are linked to various preachers, um, are often uh, favor a sectarian agenda. And there are many individuals in Saudi Arabia that are supportive of this agenda. And as a result, money and rhetorical support often flow to extremist causes. And that has beneficial ripple effects for extremist groups like Al-Qaeda. Esfandiar, what do you make of Al-Qaeda, not just in the Arabian Peninsula, but in the, uh, in the Saudi kingdom? So, so I, I agree with, with Dan's assessment here. And the only thing I'll add is that it appears to me the Saudi government has seen Al-Qaeda almost as its uh, domestic political opposition and therefore has had a limited tolerance for it. The terror financing issue remains a problem. Uh, so South Asia, the region I specialize in, uh, there are concerns of, uh, you know, funds flowing in from you know, in and around Saudi Arabia towards uh, South Asia, uh, you know, even towards Al-Qaeda. So, so that remains a concern. And I think uh, more needs to be done there. But within the kingdom itself, uh, I think the, the regime watches Al-Qaeda and any associated activity very closely and tends to come down on it fairly hard. So before heading east, let's pause a minute also over Egypt and North Africa. Egypt, uh, while not the home of bin Laden, really was the home of the of the movement that created the core of Al-Qaeda, that is the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. It's the source of the home of, original home of, of Zawahiri. And there were significant Al-Qaeda f- uh, affiliates uh, at the time of 9-11 all through all of the North African countries. So is this an area where, Asfandiar, that supports your view of resilience, or is it an area that supports Dan's view of erosion? I think Egypt and North Africa are closer to Dan's assessment of erosion. Uh, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb was uh, a a very important affiliate with with both resources and um, ideologues. But 
you know, th that centrality of uh, AQIM within the Al-Qaeda ecosystem has gone down and the center of gravity has shifted from North Africa to the Sahel region. And the, the affiliate in Sahel, West Africa, uh, really is the more prominent, more powerful affiliate uh, in that part of the world. Uh, you know, Egyptians uh, continue to uh, dominate Al-Qaeda's course. So Ayman al-Zawahiri, as I noted earlier, is alive, uh, but, you know, he's, he's most likely in South Asia. Uh, there are other senior Egyptian uh, members of the group as well, but there doesn't appear to be, you know, new recruits coming or flowing from Egypt towards either parts of other parts of the Middle East uh, or towards uh, South Asia for now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then 
weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. All right, so let's talk about Syria and Iraq uh, and Lebanon, I suppose. These were areas where there were a fair bit of concerns about al-Qaeda, particularly Syria and Iraq. However, the Islamic State kind of crowded them out for a little bit. There definitely seems to be some al-Qaeda-linked activity in Syria at this point, uh, Dan, how do you understand Al-Qaeda's performance in these areas? For me, this is an important indicator of Al-Qaeda's weakness. Uh, so just to rewind the clock a little bit, 
when the Syrian civil war breaks out, it looks like Al-Qaeda has a strong presence in Iraq. It had been diminished due to the surge and, and other events in Iraq, but it was still there and it was able to exploit the Syrian civil war, which was electrifying uh, Muslims throughout the world. And so it's a real opportunity. Uh, but then you saw the lack of control of a key affiliate. It's a Iraqi affiliate that leads to a lot of fracturing and eventually leads to the emergence of the Islamic State. And to me, that's part of the problem for Al-Qaeda is that its leadership has less ability to control local events. And when there are opportunities for locals to get strong, at times they go their own direction. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes they stay loyal. But losing Iraq, losing Syria, these are not just you know minor theaters. This was the center of the jihadist world for many years. And the loss to me in credibility was tremendous. And for many years, the energy of the broader jihadist movement was really centered around the Islamic State, not Al-Qaeda. Um, and even the Al-Qaeda components in Syria that remain loyal, we saw them distance themselves from Zawahiri and from Al-Qaeda. And that was in part, I would say, because they wanted to work with other Syrian uh, forces and those Syrian forces said, look, it's just too much pain to have any taint of al-Qaeda. It causes the United States to exert a lot of pressure. U.S. allies do as well. And so the local al-Qaeda group said, we want to remove this label. And there's always a, a splinter of a splinter. It's not that al-Qaeda has zero presence, but it really became much weaker over time. And rather than dominating the jihadist conflict of the day, it proved a relatively minor player by the end of it. You know, but but I could read that either way. I could say, okay, Al-Qaeda loses force and prominence to even more extreme organizations uh, like ISIS, which... Zawahiri had to sort of dress down and said, you know, you guys are a little too violent. And, uh, you know, that's not necessarily uh, reflective of the global jihadist movement in decline. It may be reflective of, you know, an extreme polarization leading people to ever more radical positions. And so I guess do you understand, Dan, the decline of Al-Qaeda in that region as reflective of a broader decline of the global jihadist movement? Or do you understand it as these are basically jihadists, you know, what Trump would call rhinos, right? Uh, jihadists and or gynos were jihadists in name only and that they want, you know, this is the movement is strong. They just want the 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 pure heroin. I, I think I'm going to have to steal Gino for my own purposes. So thanks for for giving me that wonderful label. Uh, so I'm going to say the answer is a bit of both. Uh, so if you go back a few years, there was tremendous energy in the global jihadist movement centered around the Islamic State. So we could say, you know, look, hooray, Al Qaeda is diminished, but the bad news is there is an even nastier organization that is very vibrant. But part of the problem uh, for the broader movement today is that ISIS was in a way very vibrant, but also so extreme that it often worked against the interests of the broader jihadist movement. So something that Ayman Zawahiri correctly was critical of was the idea of demanding the caliphate right now. 
he said, you know, look, if we do this, um, we're not going to be able to defend it. And in fact, we're basically painting a target for where the United States can bomb, right? If we say here's territory, they'll be able to go to that territory. And that actually proved correct, even though the caliphate was this incredibly exciting idea for several years. It was also one that led to a lot of blood and sacrifice and you know, no long-term benefits, or I should say few long-term benefits. In addition, the enemy of the Islamic State is includes lots of different priorities from al-Qaeda. And in particular, the Islamic State is far more sectarian. So they're much more against you know, Shia Muslims, other religious minorities. And al-Qaeda, in contrast, cooperates with Iran. And in general has said, you know, look, we have differences with our Shia brothers, but the real problem is the United States and other non-Muslims, and let's focus on that. And then, of course, these groups fight each other. So where they have rival affiliates and where they're engaged in the same theater, um, they're always trying to diminish one another rhetorically. Uh, but they're also at times, you know, shooting each other or working across purposes. And so I would say that, you know, Several years ago, when ISIS was at its height, this was really kind of a bad news story, despite the decline of al-Qaeda. But both have diminished in recent years. And the fact that they're not unified, I think, hurts the movement as a whole. All right, let's move further east. And uh, we're going to skip over Iran because al-Qaeda was never especially strong in Iran. And let's get back to South Asia. Asfandiar you said that the Taliban victory in Afghanistan was a was a big win uh, for Al Qaeda, but what about India and Pakistan? Um, there was a time when when you know you saw the the Mumbai attacks and you saw the which were not exactly Al Qaeda, but um, and you also saw you know sort of weirdly close ISI Al Qaeda footsie combined with a periodic battles over things like the Swat Valley. And, and so how is Al-Qaeda doing now in, in, in India and Pakistan? So India is a, is a real focus for Al-Qaeda in South Asia, both for its core as well as its South Asian affiliate, which is called Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. And they've been developing this campaign, this propaganda campaign targeted at India, trying to exploit the deteriorating relationship of the ruling party in India with, with the Muslim population there, uh, you know, really trying to insert itself uh, in that discussion uh, and debate. And it's, it's an open question if, you know, Al-Qaeda will, will be able to succeed, but, you know, it, it appears to be a real Focus even as uh, you know as recently as this year, Ayman al Zawahiri has uh, directed India-specific messages, uh, which have on the one hand established that he's still alive, and on the other hand, it suggests that he, he's watching events in South Asia uh, very closely. Pakistan is you know another important case, and where Al Qaeda has influence, but more indirectly, uh, the group that Al Qaeda. Uh, operates through is the this anti-Pakistan insurgent group called the Tehrik-e-Taliban Pakistan. And as you mentioned, uh, this group sort of peaked with its capture of the Swat Valley in 09, and then it had a lot of territory in, uh, in northwestern Pakistan, and it uh, hosted al-Qaeda's uh, most significant external attack capability post 9-11 for several years. Uh, now, with the Taliban's victory, 
the TDP has been emboldened. Uh, it has de facto put political asylum in, in Afghanistan uh, from where it is uh, directing its uh, its campaign of violence in Pakistan and, and really coming hard at Pakistan. The Pakistani military and ISI seem very worried and, and uh, they're re- leaning on the Taliban to broker some kind of ceasefire or political deal which will keep a lid on this kind of violence and it's an open question if 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 that kind of arrangement can be can be brokered but but overall due to the Taliban's victory uh, an al-Qaeda linked organization is able to threaten Pakistan in a significant way once again Dan it seems to me that if al-Qaeda is alive and well in in this theater it may be premature to write its obituary. So I'm counting on you to argue that it's weaker here than Asfandiar describes. Is it? Yes and no. So I would certainly agree with Asfandiar that Al-Qaeda has a presence, that it has numerous relationships, especially with Pakistani groups. Some of these are more, I'll say, institutionalized than others, but they're certainly robust. And a lot is going to depend on the policies of of the government of Pakistan, uh, which also maintains ties to numerous jihadist groups. So it's a a kind of complex world there. However, this also is an example of localization, in my view, where the more that al-Qaeda kind of gets involved in the vortex that is Pakistani jihadist politics and their relations with the regime, the less it's focused on a kind of traditional transnational terrorism agenda, whether that's throughout the Muslim world or especially against the United States and Europe. And obviously the stability of Pakistan is an important question, but that's not as important to U.S. policymakers as the defense of the homeland. Um, and to kind of go off your intro question on this, I would say, you know, certainly we shouldn't be writing al-Qaeda's obituary, but the real question to me is resource prioritization. And I would say you still want to devote resources to it. You still want to work with governments on this. But at the same time, to me, its ties in Pakistan and South Asia in general are cause for concern, but not cause for alarm. All right. Finally, I want to focus on two uh, theaters in which Al-Qaeda once had a significant presence that, you know, is just it does not is not visible to me anymore so one is you know sort of malaysia uh, indonesia philippines you know the islands off of east asia these were areas where hambali was active uh, you know where where the bali nightclub bombing happened do we see any evidence of Al-Qaeda's resurgence in these areas? Or is this, as it seems to me anyway, just an area where the combination of U.S. pressure in Afghanistan over a, lo- a long period of time and cooperation with the relevant countries has really diminished Al-Qaeda almost completely? Uh, Asfandiar, is this an area that supports the Bayman thesis? I, I think it does. Um, I think Al-Qaeda has uh, largely uh, disappeared from this part of the world. It doesn't uh, seem to be a focus for the organization. There is no clear membership of the group. The regions also dropped off from uh, the group's uh, propaganda. And as you know, I think it, 
due to the cooperation between the, the U.S. government and the, the various governments in the region. Uh, though I will note that these governments have been concerned about the implications uh, of the Taliban's rise to power in, in Afghanistan. Uh, and they are watching for interest uh, in movement towards Afghanistan, uh, any kinds of uh, foreign fighter flows from Afghanistan back towards the region. I think that uh, that remains on the minds of, of the governments of this region. So, so I'd say, you know, not uh, as many reasons to be concerned about in East Asia, at least, uh, compared to some of the other regions in, in Asia. Dan? I'll use Asfandiar's points uh, to make up a broader argument, which to me is that a lot of the success against al-Qaeda um, occurs simply when governments are paying attention. So again, to go back to the 1990s, you had this kind of mini army being assembled in Afghanistan, and only a few governments around the world were really taking it seriously, and, and the U.S. was not on this list, and nor were governments in East Asia. So you had these dangerous individuals and small groups forming all around the world. And after they did attacks, after the danger became clear, you started to see governments pay attention to them, gather intelligence, arrest operatives, work with the United States. And that over time had a very large effect. And so to me, keeping the uh, this group on the radar screen is still very important. Uh, but when you do so, I think uh, a lot of its advantages of obscurity go away and it can be very devastating over time. So there's one more major theater of operations that uh, Al-Qaeda did uh, or was present in, which was the ability to project force wherever it wanted to, whether it meant blowing up a, a British subway or, uh, or a British train or a sp Spanish train. 9-11 is the ultimate example of this. But uh, the coal bombing is a is a is another, and so I guess I would want to ask you both: Is there any evidence that they are capable of plotting and executing today complex operations that require projecting force far from where they are? Dan first. So I'm a I'm a skeptic on this, and. The word that you used I would highlight is complex. So they do have some ability to inspire individuals. It's always possible. Anybody anywhere in the world can pick up a gun, as we keep seeing in the United States. Like the ability to, I'm not talking about the ability to inspire mass shootings, right? That That's a matter of charisma and gun availability. I'm talking about the ability to do something that requires complicated logistics and movement of a lot of equipment, people, money, etc. Let me use 9-11 itself as, a, as an example and, and a counterfactual. So on 9-11, you have an event that is plotted and headquartered from Afghanistan and Pakistan. You have key volunteers coming from Germany, um, as well as Saudi Arabia and other countries. You have important meetings happening in Spain, um, you have in Malaysia. Uh, the operation itself happens in the United States, um, and there's financial tr uh, transactions going through the Gulf. Every single one of those would be more likely to be disrupted today. Some still might get through, but the combination is far less likely to succeed. People are much more likely to be detected 
arrested, killed. And as a result, I think the complex operations are far harder and they're focused more on simple operations. And that could be, as we saw in Pensacola, an affiliate manages to inspire someone to do an attack. So it doesn't just have to be an idiot picking up a gun. It can be something that has more linkages to an actual organized group. But because of improvements in U.S. intelligence and far greater U.S. focus, when individuals are talking to one another, when they're communicating, they're much more likely to be caught. And that to me is the dilemma for Al-Qaeda, which is the more planning they put into it, the more likely they are to be caught. But if they don't put any planning into it, their operatives are likely to screw things up. Asfandiar, is is this where the rubber hits the road? Dan's being Pollyannish, and they actually have much greater capacity to reconstitute in ways that will allow them to do this than he's acknowledging? Or are they really going to be a series of regional organizations that make attempts at this sort of thing, but uh, this is an area where they're really uh, degraded? So, so I think we have seen indicators of some attempts, in particular by Shabab, over over the last few years at this kind of complex planning. Um, but, but the U.S. government hasn't told us enough uh, as to what they know. You know how far along, you know, some of this co- complex planning was. And what I take away then is that there is an ambition to attempt something like that. I think there is more uncertainty as to whether the U.S. CT machine can actually stop it and prevent it. In particular today, given that, you know, a major CT retrenchment against jihadist threats is underway, you know, both domestically and, and, and overseas. I mean, at home, you know, capabilities are being devoted to the growing threat of, you know, white nationalism, right-wing terrorism. Uh, and, you know, that the domestic threat portfolio has in many ways exploded. And at the same time, there's no commensurate sort of increase in resources. And then overseas as well, uh, you know, the U.S. military is pulling out from uh, from various parts of Africa. Uh, it has pulled out from Afghanistan, the Middle East. And the U.S. military pro- was providing the platforms to watch some of this complex planning uh, and plotting, detect early indicators, you know, signs of threats. Uh, I think, you know, the, the U.S. still has partnerships with relevant governments to to have some visibility, but today the visibility is much lower. So all of this is to say that I am not as confident in our ability to preempt this type of complex attack planning that you described, you know, which which could have led to some major attacks, you know, a decade or so ago, and thankfully didn't. So, yeah, that's that's where I'm, I'm at on this issue. We are going to leave it there. Asfandiar Mir, Dan Byman, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, This episode was engineered by the good folks at Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks, you should become a material supporter of Lawfare if you aren't one already. Patreon.com slash Lawfare. That's Patreon.com slash Lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.